Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to episode 641 with my guest Christine Kimmel. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour and it is a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our head. Metal and emotional and sexual struggles both past and and present. Very excited about this interview with Christine. Uh, Such an interesting life, such an interesting upbringing, and so open and honest about about all of it. Um, Watched an interesting documentary the other night about uh, Pornhub. And uh, full disclosure, back when I was uh, watching porn, (laughs) I occasionally uh, uh, visited their site and it was pretty fascinating to i'm not going to ruin the documentary for any of you that are interested in in watching it but it was it was very fascinating and i learned i'd heard about only fans which apparently when they i don't know started putting restrictions on pornhub a bunch of um uh sex workers online sex workers migrated to OnlyFans. And I'd heard the name, but I always thought it was just something where you connected with your fans, where you would, you know, have a phone call with them and, you know, talk about your favorite foods and stuff like that. I had no idea that it was kind of porn related. And uh, and I thought, you know, I, I need to uh, generate a little bit of extra income, but I I don't really want to take my clothes off for OnlyFans, so I'm thinking maybe I'll just role play for listeners who are old curious, and it might be a nice way to help somebody live out their fantasy of uh, being with somebody who forgets the safe word. Could be hot. Something to think about. <laughs> maybe my, Maybe my... My avatar for my OnlyFans account will just me, just be me enjoying a nice piece of fish. <laughs> uh, let's read some surveys. This is from the Body Shame. Am I the only one that cracks myself up? Sometimes I worry that I am. This is from the Body Shame survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself the girl with a voice disorder. And she writes, I have a few, um, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, I have a few things I don't like about my body. First, I always experience depersonalization. So I have a really hard time looking at myself in the mirror or in pics. And I always feel like it's not really me. Second, 
I started having scoliosis, curvature of the spine, when I was about eight or nine, but wasn't diagnosed until 11. I wore a brace for uh, a year and had surgery for it in 1991. I've always been self-conscious about my ribs being rotated and my hips being uneven. Most people tell me they didn't notice, but my spine is curved like an S, so it's easier to hide with clothing. The one thing that really bugs me is my voice. I have something called spasmodic dysphonia. I've had it for about 21 years, but was never diagnosed until two years ago. I was very self-conscious about talking because I can't get my words out very easily. I have breaks in my speech and I have voice tremors. For years, I had people ask me, what's the matter with your voice? Do you have a cold? Are you sick? Are you anxious? Are you okay? You sound like you're about to cry. Are you deaf? Where are you from? I can't tell your accent. Almost daily, someone would ask me one of those questions. It actually made my voice worse because it caused my anxiety to increase. Now I know what it is. I tell people I have a voice disorder. It quiets them pretty quickly. Luckily, I was finally diagnosed and now get Botox injections into my vocal cords every three or four months. They worked, you know, there's a joke just sitting there and I'm going to pass it right by. They worked really well for the first couple shots, but now they don't seem to help as much. My voice still sounds better than it did before I started receiving the injections. People, please don't make fun of a person's voice. They can't help it. Thank you for sharing that. And I don't think we think that often uh, that somebody might not have control over their voice or their laugh. I think that's something uh, that that people get criticized for sometimes. But, you know, a laugh is just such an involuntary reaction. But thank you for sharing that. That was, um, that was really interesting. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Emily. And she writes, uh, I love the episode I just listened to with Nadare Fanoyan. I thought I had listened to all your episodes, but this hit me like a truck. I absolutely love this woman. As someone with a lot of trauma history and mental illness and who had related to so many of your guests, I can still uh, I can still say that this woman just filled my heart. Thank you for playing this episode again. Yeah, I think we re-ran that one um, around the holidays. Uh, and she was an Iranian, uh, Iranian, Iranian. When I all of a sudden panic and forget how a word that we (laughs) use so commonly, I think it's Iranian or Iranian, but she was a freedom fighter when the uh, Ayatollah took uh, power in the 80s. And yes, she was the first listener I ever interviewed and a fascinating interview and a sweet, sweet person. This uh, is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by Antonio, and he asks, I'm not from L.A., but I'll be passing through on a trip and could spend a day in the city. Should I take the bus slash metro you've mentioned on the show? It's unsafe. Should I do Lyft instead? Um, I think it depends on what time of day you're doing it. Uh, I think the bus is probably safer than the train. And I, I I don't know if I would say that the train is unsafe. It's definitely unsanitary, depending on, uh, especially if you take it after, if you take it at night. Um, I think they clean the trains a little bit more during the day. But um, 
the last time I took it, it, it seemed like there were more uh, police around. But, uh, yeah, there were many times I took it where I was, like, afraid that I was going to be attacked. Like, uh, you know, people with untreated mental illnesses uh, just, like, right in your face, screaming, talking to people that aren't there. And um, it's an interesting position to be in as someone who's a mental health advocate but also feeling physically threatened and wondering what is the right way to deal with this situation. It's uh, it's intense. So maybe walk. Because <laughs> who knows? Maybe your Lyft driver is uh, more unsafe than the Metro. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey as well. And Stephanie asks, why are comedians so angry? Fuck off. See what I did there? Uh, I don't know if there's one one in all seriousness answer to that but I would I think the thing that can probably cover all of it is something is missing from our childhoods that we are trying to fill with comedy and for many of us comedy is not something that we haphazardly chose to go into it's something that we felt compelled you know because I think for many of us um, we didn't choose to be funny as kids. We felt we had to do it to survive because it was just so, we were so uncomfortable in our skin, uh, whether it was how we felt about ourselves or the situation around us. You know, there was a lot of tension in my family, very silent. Um, my parents did did not like each other but didn't fight. There was just a such a clear disconnect uh, between them emotionally. And I was kind of anointed um, to be my mom's spouse emotionally. And I think I just buried a lot of that anger. So probably anger at my mom for not having boundaries and my dad for being checked out and not being the the dad that uh, he, he could have been. But um, thank God for therapy and support groups and talking to people because I don't feel that way anymore anymore I've made uh, I've made some peace with it and I don't feel that burning urge like I have to get on stage and make people laugh otherwise I'm gonna evaporate this episode is sponsored by when breath becomes air when Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. 
When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence, and this is filled out by Samantha. And about her anorexia, she writes, Anorexia is like an old friend from college that I had an extremely toxic relationship with. I check her Instagram from time to time, but thankfully we don't talk much anymore. Snapshot from her life. I stopped drinking to help me lose weight and regulate my hormones, but now I smoke more weed, which makes me hungry. So I had two breakfasts for the past two days to keep my racing thoughts from reminding me that replacing one addiction with another or five is not the answer. But it sure is a start. At least croissants and donuts don't cause me to text my ex. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our willingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I'm here with uh, Christine Kimmel um, I met you, uh, what, about a month ago doing the podcast that you do with my friend Danielle Koenig called How to Survive. Yes. Uh, you're a writer, you're married, you got two kids, you got a pit bull mix named Sally and a big fat cat. Named Mandy Patinkin. Really? Yeah. <laughs> He's a boy and his name is Mandy. So we went with Mandy Patinkin. I love it. Yeah. He's a little bit crazy, but, you know, he fits into our mm -hmm. chaos. Does he know how to stop a show and find his light at center stage? You know, he's not quite Mandy enough to yeah. do that. Yeah. But uh, he does know how to torment our dog pretty well. Yeah. And you realize that Jimmy Pardo, Danielle's husband, loves Mandy Patinkin. Did you know that? Well, probably not my Mandy Patinkin because I think he's pretty allergic <laughs> he is to allergic my version. To everything. <laughs> I know. I, you know, I think Danielle has to change her clothes when she leaves her house because it's just that is not surprising. Poor Jimmy, I he's know. got so many, so many health struggles. I should have him on just to talk about all the health hurdles he he has gone through in the in the last ten years. Do you have enough tape? <laughs> I'm telling him. <laughs> I'm telling him. You said that he would laugh at that. He would laugh at that. Uh, so we don't know a whole lot about each other. I know that you're uh, a writer. Um, That's true, yeah. And one of the things you shared b before we started uh, 
rolling is you mentioned that you're in marriage counseling with your husband. I yeah, assume that's okay to, yeah, to that's, talk about. Please. We have not talked about marriage counseling. I mention it often when I read people's surveys and they're having issues with their partner. Uh, and, I, and I'll say, I think everybody should go to not only to counseling for themselves, but if, if they're in a long-term relationship, it's, it's like going to the gym with your yeah. partner. Yeah. I think everyone should do it, even if they think they're doing well. Yeah. I mean, we weren't doing well when we started, I think about a year and a half ago, it mm-hmm. was a really tough time. And I was like, we can go, but it doesn't matter. Like this is, you know, this isn't working. I did not have hope. I would say that we could get through our problems. And you said that to him or you thought that? I said it. You know, I was I was like I had my foot out the door. I thought we can't make it through this. Um And what were the issues that you're comfortable talking about? I think we both can acknowledge this at this point. Like we had really I mean this is a very cliché problem in marriage uh we really had a lot of difficulty around money mm-hmm. and how to manage it and talk about it. And and a lot of it was for me, I think, just also feeling very powerless because of not being an equal earner and sort of losing my power after I stopped getting hired in television and having to rely on him financially and feeling like a child almost in the relationship because I couldn't provide financially anymore in a way that I was used to because I had, you know, basically been working since I was 15 and I had put myself through college. Um, And so I'd always been very financially independent. And then after having kids, it was just hard to get jobs in the industry. Um, Not that I'm blaming my kids, but I think that just, it was like, I sort of took a break, you know, I had twins I wanted to be with them, but also the industry was like, oh, you're a mom now. Okay, we'll not call her anymore. (laughs) It was like, it was sort of like, no, no, I still want to work. Right. I just wanted to take like a little time off. I mean, I actually didn't even take time off. I took a job when they were 11 weeks old, which was insane looking back. You know, I remember taking another job when they were. I think like three months old, that was a disaster. And I, you know, I got really sick. Um, because I shouldn't have taken the job. Anyway, um, so money was something that I think we both came in from our own childhoods and our own backgrounds Mm -hmm. of having issues around it from our own parents, of not sort of knowing how to navigate those conversations. And we didn't have good communication skills with each other because it was like, our parents didn't have good communication skills. So right. instead of talking things out, we would just get mad and have silences. And try to win. Yeah. Um, and for me, as a person who you know, came from divorce, my idea of when things get hard, you just end it. And that's what I had always done. Every relationship I'd ever been in before my marriage was, this is hard. This isn't working. I'll walk away. Um. But, you know, it's different because now I have kids mm-hmm. and I don't want them to be children of divorce because I I know what that looks like and I didn't want that for them. So I was like, I don't want this life for my kids and I have to 
try really hard to make this work. That's even gotta, though, even though I, I don't think it's going to. <laughs> that's got to be a really scary place to live where your personal need to be true to yourself is so deep and so powerful and your commitment to your kids is so deep and so powerful that that has to be a, a, a really trapped feeling. I don't know. Don't, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I'm, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes because I, I was in a marriage that had mm-hmm. kind of gone past its expiration date, but I didn't have kids. And yeah. it was still the most difficult decision I've ha- ever had to make because I still cared for her. And I know mm-hmm. that she cared for me, but it just, we had grown apart. Yeah. And, and it, it was gut wrenching. Yeah. I think it's difficult. And I think a lot of people do need to get divorced, you know, yeah. and, and it's better in some situations. It is better for the kids yeah. because there can be really toxic marriages that are more stressful for the kids to be in. Yeah. And a, and a terrible role model for them. That's, that's not gonna, good. Yeah. That is going to affect how they choose a partner probably. And there's certainly a lot of reasons when I look back that I think, oh, it would have been worse had my parents stayed together mm-hmm. in some in certain ways. I mean, we'll never know. But I think for me, I was like, okay, let's see if we can work through some of these issues, even though I don't think it's going to help, you know, like, because right. I had already tried so much to sort of work through them, I thought. Um, on but, your own? Yeah, on yeah. our own, I thought we had. But I, I think what marriage counseling really does is having that third person there really makes a difference. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, understatement. Because understatement. they really, it, for me, it felt like, he was really hearing these things for the first time that I thought I'd already said so many times that it was like it validated him him hearing it, having her sort of say it again mm-hmm. was like he heard it. He really heard it. Yeah. And then I also got to hear him say things that I think he wasn't really communicating. You know, um, at least in our marriage – I tended to be the one that was a little bit more vocal about my issues, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't. And I think marriage counseling forced him to. When you would be vocal about your issues, looking back now, was there a lack of uh, diplomacy? Was it kind of attacking, or was it the ideal of expressing it in terms of your feelings and not putting him on the defensive? Well, I think I was, I think we're pretty kind to each other overall. And I think I would say things and I would be kind about it. And I think he had some methods that felt, sometimes they would feel like gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would feel like, okay, I'm going to, we'll make these changes. And then they would just not change. So frustrating. So it would feel like, well, you're just saying these things, but nothing mm-hmm. ever changes. And I think that really once we did more of the work in counseling, because what happened in counseling is we both really unpacked the the real hurt behind the money stuff, mm-hmm. which was a lot of my own fear about stuff that had happened in my childhood that was around money because it wasn't really about the money. Right. And his own fear about the money which wasn't really about the money. Right. So what what was it about? Well, I think for me, um, 
you know, my parents divorced. My dad had sort of secretly um, withheld money when we were kids. And then he cheated on my mom uh, probably more than once, but like left for when she was 34, he left her for a younger woman. (laughs) She was way too old and, um, left us, you know, pretty high and dry. And we were already working class, but that really threw us into a state of like financial peril. So it was like, you know, government cheese level free lunches were, maybe going to get the, you know, heat shut off kind of situation. And he went and bought a new car. Wow. And would, I think, like kind of fight my mom over child support. I mean, he always paid it, but it was like the minimum while we were really struggling. And were you aware of all that? At the time, I really wasn't. I think my mom did a pretty good job of protecting us from the information. Good for her, man, because a lot of parents would weaponize that situation and make the kids pawns without even realizing it. Yeah. She, I mean, I think I knew some of it pretty young and it might've just been that like my mom has five sisters and I think there was a lot of like, you know, that shit for brains, that piece of shit. You know, I think I kind of knew there was anger at my dad, but I, and, and I knew, I mean, I knew he bought a new car and that we were in the free lunch line at school and that didn't make sense to me. Um, And, you know, so I think that for me was always like, you can't trust men and they leave and they hold the money. Money is more important than you. Yeah. So I think there was always this in my mind. Even Uh, if not conscious? Even if not conscious, you know, so I think that when... That was, you know, when we, when my husband and I got married, you know, we both were working and I, I was, you know, writing for television and, you know, had a lot of financial freedom and we weren't, we didn't have to really hash out a lot of financial stuff because it was fine. We both were doing well and, you know, we didn't have kids, right? We had kids right away, but we didn't have kids yet. And so it was like, we could go on nice vacations and just split everything and everything's easy peasy. And then suddenly I have no income and twins and have to figure out how to figure out the finances and he's got all the money and it feels very like complicated. Do I have to ask for money now? Like how do we navigate this situation? So I feel completely powerless. And then all this stuff's coming up that I don't understand because I think I'd never really processed. I mean, I'd been to therapy um, plenty, <laughs> lots of different therapists. Um, but I don't know if I'd really ever dug into the money stuff that had really sort of done a number on me. Did the therapist help you make the connection between your past and the present issue? I think this therapist, this marriage counselor right. did. Um, you know, I don't think I'd ever really examined that in previous therapy because I think I was dealing with like if I'd gone to therapy in the past it was always like I'm depressed I need help right now for this depression in this moment and of course we would go over childhood stuff Mm -hmm. in 
in that time, but it was all, it was often like, you know, there was a lot of chaos in my home growing up because my dad wasn't there and I had two older brothers who were pretty out of control. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was just often it was talking about that, you know, the sort of home environment that I grew up in and, and sort of not being uh, protected. So I think. Did you, did you feel invisible at all because there was so much drama or did you feel like you, you got attention? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I think I, I never felt that I wasn't loved. I do think I was loved. I mean, I'm sure I was loved, even though it was, there was a lot of dysfunction. Um, but you know, my mom went through a period of time after my dad left that she had a mental breakdown was sent away for a while, but we were like, where's mom? (laughs) And when she came back, she started going out all the time because I think it was like she'd gotten married when she was 18 because she was pregnant and never had really any kind of experience of fun in her own life. And so it was like, this is going to be my time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out and I'm going to have some fun. But unfortunately it coincided with me being, you know, eight and so I didn't have any... Um, who was watching you when she would go out? Well, my two older brothers who were, you know, one was a drug dealer <laughs> and the other was a, like, a I pimp. was... <laughs> you're close. He was, um, you know, a pretty violent alcoholic who was like sort of known in the town as the guy you didn't want to get in a fight with because he was six foot eight and loved to drink whiskey. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like famously known as like the Kimmel brothers, you know, so like you didn't want to mess with them. And so we had like marijuana growing on the roof of our house and always like cars on blocks in our yard and constantly like it was like dazed and confused was my living room, which would have been fun, but I was eight. <laughs> oh my God. So it was like. You know, we had like my brother's room had like drug scales in it and there were constantly teenagers going in and out. And like, I mean, I think I knew how to roll a joint when I was 11. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't think I had a real I had a childhood, but it was different. Sure. It was an episode of Cops. (laughs) (laughs) It was. It was. And that was your Brady Bunch was the show Cops. Yeah. Yeah. That was my Brady Bunch. And so I, you know, oftentimes the way I think I've managed it is, you know, making it funny. Right. Is is that, you know, it was an adventure and in certain ways it was. It's like in sixth grade when your brother wakes you up and is like, we're going to go steal this pot plant from Aunt Carrie's boyfriend you know, and you're like, I'm in sixth grade. You know, this is an adventure. I'm an adult. Yeah. They include me. You brought me a can of beer, too. Like, you're like, this is cool. But, like, you're not supposed to do that in sixth Like, I have kids who are about to be in sixth grade, and they're just littles. You know, you're like, oh, they really just want to snuggle with a grown-up at night. They don't want to get up and go steal a pot plant, you know, from the south end of town past the factories. <laughs> And then it was my job to come home every day after school and hide it. So my mom didn't find it. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So I do think we didn't get to the money in therapy. (laughs) 
because we had a lot of other stuff to cover. Um, you talk about counseling, uh, marriage counseling, no, just or generally uh, in therapy, generally right. in therapy, and and um, you know, I think also one of the things that sort of I hadn't, I had to sort of work through in my adulthood was that I was as a child I had I think a pretty severe anxiety disorder <laughs> wonder why <laughs> but I also think that like that may have been genetic like I may have had that yeah. no matter what you know that that I think it was certainly exacerbated by the situation I mean you could put a normal kid in that situation and yeah they probably have an anxiety disorder too um but they know how to steal weed Oh, they'd be the best little tiny weed stealer yeah. around. Who's going to frisk an eight-year-old? Nobody. <laughs> yeah, you can just put them through any metal detector. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, there was a lot going on in my childhood to sort of navigate. And um, so I think, yeah, coming back to the money, there was just – that was kind of way down the line of things that I didn't think I had to really unpack because it was mm-hmm. like, we're never going to get to that. There's so right. many other things right. we got to get to first. I just want my husband to not be a dick yeah. around money. Yeah. That's I just, a- yeah, just not like, you know, be um, in jail. You know, like I think that also for me, it's also like remembering that the bar needs to be higher than kind of where I came from. (laughs) Um, Because there was, yeah, you know, a lot of dysfunction. Um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought a little bit. Uh, So as as you're unpacking this stuff with uh, in in marriage counseling, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier was how it's not about the thing. Yeah. Generally. Yeah. It's usually what – has been getting swept under the rug or not processed from before we met this person that we're struggling yes. uh, to have a relationship with. Um, dis- describe kind of how your how your therapist um, guided you. Did you what were your preconceived notions other than that it was not going to work? What were your preconceived notions about the role the therapist was going to have? And did it wind up being different? Yeah, it did. That's a really good question. I feel like I went in with it thinking I have to make her believe me and be on my side. Like in the sense of like I'm going to win therapy, which is also I think something I tend to do going into therapy in general, which is I'm going to make them like me the best. (laughs) <laughs> that is so human and so fucking common. I'm going to make them – I'm going to be their favorite. And the other reason I think we do that is we don't want them to tell us things that we don't want to hear. Yeah. Another thing I've done too, which is like I'm going to reassure them that I'm okay with all the things I'm telling them, which is the opposite of a – Think what therapy is? <laughs> yeah. Is it because you don't want them to pity you or you don't want to feel like I feel what? like I, I think I feel like I have to take care of them. Like this thing happened, but like it's okay. And also my mom couldn't help it. Like I have to make them okay with the situation because I feel bad for the therapist that they have to hear it. <laughs> and 
also, you know, my mom was doing the best she could. Like, I have to also, like, make sure everyone who they might be mad at, it wasn't their fault either. You so know? you have to control it. I guess. It's, yeah. it's, I guess it's just this caretaking. Right. And I think maybe that was a childhood thing where it was like, you know, my brothers both got girls pregnant in high school. Why not? So, you know, we had twin babies in our house when I was 12 that my <laughs> my brother just, and his girlfriend. Every time you think the cake doesn't have another layer. Oh, we haven't touched yeah. the, scratched the surface. And then my other brother got a, a girl pregnant when I think they were in 10th grade. So she was 15. The twins lived in our house. So my mom was a grandmother when she was 36. And they all lived at our house. So I... And there was a lot of violence, you know, like police coming to our house level of violence. So I was like, I'm going to just be really quiet and I'm not going to make any trouble and I'm going to make sure I'm really good. I wasn't. I mean, by the way, but I'm just not going to get caught. Right. Um, and I think that I take on that role in life a lot of the time, you know, where it's like I'm going to be the fixer. And it's hard for me to even let that go in therapy where I'm like are you doing okay? Like, I'll ask the therapist. Or I'll apologize. I'm sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> wow. And how long was it before you began to let that go in therapy? I don't know. I think... Were you bringing it into the marriage counseling, or did you learn to to let that go? I, I don't know if I have let it go completely. I'll still feel bad that I'm saying too much and not giving my husband enough time to talk, you know, and I have to catch myself from apologizing, you know, that like, um, I'm consciously aware of the fact that I do it a lot. That's good though. I tr- that, 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 that you're aware of it. Yeah. I, I, I am aware of it, but like, I think, I, I think I've gotten better about, Yeah setting bound healthy boundaries for myself but like also realizing that i can get swept up into those unhealthy situations you know i had a therapist (laughs) okay i'll tell this story um i was really depressed and um hadn't quite gotten the right you know medications yet for me that were going to help me that i now have that are wonderful and in a really tough place in L.A., it can be a really lonely place, um, as you probably mm-hmm. know. And um, really broke and just had gone through um, a really tough uh, health crisis. And I was in the middle of all of this. And so I was like, I have to see a therapist. I'm feeling like close to being suicidal. So I found this guy online and was going. And of course, I'd never gone to a male therapist before. I start developing a crush on him, which is very super common. common. I mean, I majored in psychology, so I even knew about transference. So I was like, oh, here it is. Um, But I was so out of it and so depressed that in my head I started to think like, well, this could happen. We could be together. Like we could have a relationship. I think this could work. He had a wedding ring on, but in my head – I was like, maybe he's not married. Maybe he just likes wearing rings. Like I was looking back. I'm, I'm really embarrassed to even tell this story. But also he was like, you can email me anytime you want to talk, which I now looking back, I'm like, that's kind of weird. Like, 
And so I was emailing him all the time, just like conversational emails about movies I liked. And he would email me back movies he liked. That 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 is a little a little weird, right? A little weird. The the subject matter, the fact yeah. that it was like, the, and that he's giving me this much access. But at the time, I was like, "This is great. I am right. his favorite patient." Like, right? And I would joke about like wanting to be his favorite patient, and like that that was a problem I had mm-hmm. about trying to make therapists like me. And um, but I, I I don't think it's unusual for a therapist to be available for, you know, um messaging each other around the issues the issues right it's it's when it it seems like the therapist and i don't know i'm not a therapist but it seems like the therapist maybe should have veered it um back kind, to back to the stuff yeah. and kind of i don't know I, I okay well let me i'll tell you the rest get to so, when get to when you start dating with him so yeah um he's outside i said Listen, I feel like I need to share this because, you know, you want honesty and what's going on in my life. And this is hard for me to say, but I have a crush on you. And, you know, it was I'm I'm sure my face was red. I felt I was so nervous. I can feel the feelings of nervousness just even talking about it here. And he was like, I'm so honored that you shared that with me. And that is just really I know how hard that can be to say and it's so normal and I listen I, it's such a safe space I feel like I can share with you that I also have a crush on you now that is super fucked up wow and I'll tell you the first thought I had was I'm amazing like I won therapy forever <laughs> but then immediately I felt sick inside like I felt such a deep Sadness. Were you married at the time? No, I was single. And I was also like on the verge of, no, I'd already lost my apartment. I was living on my friend's couch. I was declaring bankruptcy. I was out of contact with my family. Like my life was in shambles. I was really sick. And I thought at the time I was so sick, I thought I had cancer because I couldn't figure out, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. So my life was really in a bad place. And he was kind of my life raft. And I was, I think I was just so shaken. I was like, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and that was kind of like how the session ended. And I just had to process it. Cause I was like, maybe we're going to like, I don't know, are we going to be together? That doesn't, I don't think I, that doesn't feel right. Like I don't want it. I don't think I, it's like I didn't want him to say that. I thought I did. But then when he said it, it felt terrible. And I went back and I said, I need you to know that I don't think you were supposed to say that to me. Well, that was brave. And it was so hard. And I said, I'm I'm not going to come back. I just came back to tell you that, you know, I don't. I don't think it was right that you said that. And then he tried to sort of explain why he thought it was good for him to say that because it would validate like that I wasn't wrong about the feeling I had and that there was something there, but it was part of the therapy. Mm. And I was like, I don't no. think so. I don't uh, and I'm not going to come back. And um I'm not going to pay for the session. <laughs> That's amazing. Um but like, you know, uh, I've I've talked to, you know, I've shared this before and people were like, you should have turned him in and like, I hope you got, you know, prosecuted or whatever. And I was like, I, 
I was not in a place like to take right. legal action against anyone or even make the call. Like court would be a nice layer on top of this. Yes, exactly. How can I complicate my life more? Right. I could. I'll have one of my brothers be my lawyer. <laughs> yeah, like I couldn't. I had to borrow money to declare bankruptcy. Like that was how messy my life was at that point. That like someone lent me the legal fees. <laughs> so I was like, I couldn't. Also, add on top of that, like I think the fact that I was able to even just be like, you can't say that to me was the the best I could do at the time. Um, you know, I ended up just making it a part of my stand-up set. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, here's how I'll process that. I'm going to tell it on stage. And how was the reaction? I mean, it was fine. Like a lot of my stand-up, <laughs> it was mixed results. It's hard when you share something dark because the, the audience, in, in a way kind of wants to, not to protect you but yeah it it's uh they feel bad for laughing at it even yeah. though they know you want them yeah. to laugh yeah. at it yeah and and i think that like in their you know they they were correct is that it's like certain materials really hard to I mean, to make light of because it is so fucked up but I didn't know how else to process it. I didn't want to go back to therapy. I was right. kind of turned off of therapy for, you know, a good number mm -hmm. of years. Um, now, your therapist was in the audience. Did he find it funny? You know what? He, his wife actually was the one who really didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so let's, let's fast forward then to, yeah. to marriage counseling. And what were some of the breakthroughs? You know, you mentioned connecting the trauma around money and not trusting men. Actually, before we get to that, where was where was your relationship with your dad back then? Obviously, you kind of knew what was going on. Did you feel any hatred towards him? Did you what? what when I was little, when you were little, and and. Through the years, did that change? No, when I was little, I didn't really um, have, you know, my brothers did. They were very angry because I think they were more aware of everything that was going on. Yeah. And I was little and, you know, he was sweeter to me. I think he was able to sort of bond with me because I was a girl than he was able to with my brothers mm -hmm. based on his own traumatic childhood. Um, and so, you know. We saw each other most weekends and he would like take me camping or fishing or, you know, to his sad dad apartment that smelled like a sponge, <laughs> you know, just like kind of a lonely dad apartment. And, yeah. you know, we would kind of hang out there. But I don't think I had really anger towards him until I got older and then knew more and also just you know, he kind of started to burn me a little bit as an adult in the way I think he had with my mom financially when, like, he said, you know, hey, if you go to college, I'll I'll pay for it. And then I went to college and he paid for, like, the first semester and then said, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. So I was like, oh. Then I had to figure out. Yet, an yet another uh, example of you can't trust. Yeah. Yeah. And then he had done that when I was sick in, in California, you know, before the ther therapist crush, I um, 
I I didn't have enough money to get insurance, you know, and, and this was before Obamacare. Mm-hmm. But um, I had to get insurance in a, quickly because I'd had a seizure. Um, <laughs> I also have epilepsy. <laughs> I'm telling you, we have a lot to cover, but we're not going to get to all of it on this episode. So I was like, I got to get insurance right now because I need to go see a specialist and just make sure everything's okay. And so I before, because my roommate was like, you've got to go to the emergency room. I was like, nope, we got to sign up for insurance first, pre-existing conditions. USA, number one. We're so so good with our healthcare system here. And so my dad, I had called him and I was like, can you just help me out with insurance? And he said, yeah, as long as you need. He covered it for a month and then said, I can't do this anymore. So I was like, I didn't speak to him for two years after that. Because I was like, I can't believe how much you are letting me down again. And he can afford it. Like, that's why it's hard. You know, we have a pretty good relationship now. But oftentimes he'll talk about, like, how much money he has in, like, his investment accounts and how well he's done. And I think about all of the times that, like... I was basically almost homeless in LA and lived on someone's couch for a year while I had a really debilitating illness. And I'm like, you're breaking my heart right now. Have you ever confronted him? No, I haven't. Um, I don't know how to do that. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. I've, I've, um, avoided, um, Confronting my mom about childhood shit that was really fucked up. She kind of heard through the grapevine that I was talking about it on the podcast. Um, but it it um, it terrifies me. And she's a old fucking lady. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know what that is. I mean, he came out here and lived with us for like four months, and I took care of him and did you know I helped him with all kinds of things and basically you know he's eighty. I took care of him and it was, I thought it would be a, like a lovely thing to do and it tore me apart. It was, I had so much rage inside. <laughs> I was like, fuck you. And when he was like, I don't think this is working out. I was like, you're right. <laughs> Go back to Ohio. <laughs> wow. So fast forward now back to marriage counseling. Um, what were the the breakthroughs and you know the 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 kind of analogy i had when you were talking about the role that your 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 therapist had mm-hmm. in helping the two of you is that a good therapist whether you're by yourself in therapy or you're going to counseling it's kind of it's kind of like you're lost in the woods and the therapist is a helicopter yeah. Above it, yeah. kind of saying, just letting you know, here's where you're at. Yeah. Here's where you came from. I'm not telling you necessarily where to go. Mm-hmm. I just want you, I'm reinforcing the, the data that you've, you've given me. Is, is that accurate at all? I think so. I mean, what th- I think she did that was really wonderful is she kind of worked through our childhoods a bit. Mine took more than one session. <laughs> <laughs> She was like, we're not going to get through all this today. Um, Wow. So 
And did your husband know all this stuff? He knew it. You know, he he knew it, obviously, in like bits and pieces. And, um, you know, he's been around my family and he's met them. And and, and so, you know, he also gets to to see it when we go. Um, So she's like, we're not going to finish this in one session. Right. But um, hearing that, I think, and then she's able to kind of go, okay, so now we can go to here's why maybe this is what's bothering Chris when, you know, the money is divided in this way and it feels for her like this from her childhood and what she's gone through. And then we go through my husband's experiences with his family and what he sort of endured, which is very different, Mm -hmm. you know, but has its own issues as well. Mine's worse. (laughs) I win. Um, (laughs) But then I could go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I can now sort of see from his perspective why he's viewing it differently and has a different relationship with money. And and, and he could really get my fears, I think, a little bit better or my um, reaction to certain things. And vice versa? Vice versa, yeah. I think before I was just like, you're the bad guy, you know, like, and and also just putting so much of my past onto him because I was like, yeah, you're great now, but you're going to leave because they always do. And they take the money and then you're left and you have to go work in a factory and live on food stamps. So I'm just waiting for that to happen. Wow, that's that's (laughs) intense. Yeah. So what changed? I think um, one of the things that really helped was, you know, my husband was so committed to the marriage counseling and just like really being so vulnerable and open and like willing to do the work. Even when I was not, I was the one who was like, this is not going to work, you know, with my arms crossed and very much like. Mm. And it seems like there's always one partner that kind of has that attitude that yeah. is dragged, kicking and screaming. I'll go, but right. it's not yes. going to work. Right. You know, like, fine, this is for you, but I'm going to sit with my arms crossed. Um, but I think, you know, if you have a skilled counselor, you really um, – they kind of just chip away. Mm-hmm. And and she was lovely. And we really started to look forward to going, even though usually one of us would be crying by the end of the session. And I think that, you know, now a year and a half later, she's kind of like, guys, you can stop. And we're like, nope, we don't want to. My husband is actually like, she keeps me like, it's like a tune up for me. She's keeping me. He, he thinks it's keeping him like on his best behavior in a way because he has to be held accountable. Yeah. And I'm like, I agree. (laughs) It's good. It's good to go because it's like, you know, you're going to have to show up and sort of recount. It's like confession or something. Yeah. It, it, you know, I'm struck by his commitment to being the best guy that, that he can be and to make your relationship work that that's so loving. Have you ever felt that that was a, a, a form of love? towards you it feels you know it's like it definitely feels because he comes from parents who are together and that 
it's like, oh, he never would consider that we wouldn't be together. Because to him, it's like, well, we're married, so we're just together forever. And to me, I'm like, well, people don't stay together. So we'll just do it until it's bad and then it's over because that's how relationships work. Right. And for him, it's such a different perspective that him being like, well, this is hard, but of course we're going to just work it out is such a um, shift in my perspective of how relationships could be. It's just that we didn't have the tools to know how to work things out, you know, especially be get, given that I think we both came from parents who didn't talk things out. And his parents would stay together, but in this sort of stoic silence, you know, they're Germans. He's from Germany. So they're very put together and uh, stoic. And I'm from the Midwest where it's either stoicism or punching holes in walls. Sure. So those aren't either of those are bad. No. You know, neither's a good option. Right. It's a lot of uh, plaster in the walls. <laughs> it adds up. <laughs> So where do you feel like you're at today in in your relationship with him? You're still going to counseling? Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's it's nice because we – I mean, right now, it's – we often use it to just get parenting help, you know, because that's what we – luckily, we're sort of in a good enough place that most of the time we're just talking about things we're dealing with as parenting preteens and feeling like – now it's the the other hurdle of having a family. When you grew up in a, for me, which was a very dysfunctional environment and, and not really being parented, is am, I don't know how to do this, you know, and, and, and you read a lot of parenting. I read a lot of parenting books to help me, but it's like, well, I don't know what to do with them because this was a period of time where I was just left on my own. So I'm always like, Oh, am I am I doing enough to actually take care of these children? I'm always very afraid I'm neglecting them. And so having a person I can go to, you know, every couple weeks to just sort of run things by her is really nice. Are there any parenting books that have been especially helpful to you? Um, that's a good question. I feel like I've read so many um I liked – there's one that's like how to talk so your kids will listen and listen so your kids will talk I thought was good. Oh, I like that title. And then there was one that's called I think Peaceful Parenting. Um, those two stand out, but it might just be because I can remember the titles. Yeah. A lot of them also though feel like – I'm like whose kids are you talking about? Because they're like <laughs> right. let them know that they can come back and talk to you when they're calm and tell them to go to their room and calm down. And I'm like, those aren't my kids. Like, my kids are not those kids. What are your kids? They're just, like, not that calm that you can do that. They're just like, no. And I'm like, well, then you don't get screen time. I don't care. So it's like, oh, well, then I, I can't make you, I guess. What's, just, that, what's that feel like? Uh, hard. It's very hard. Do you ever find yourself like wanting to explode and go back to the, I, I, I need to win here? Uh, yeah. I I never sort of knew I had rage inside of me until I became a parent. And I also realized that growing up with someone who displays a lot of rage um, is terrifying for one, but it's also like, oh, that's my go-to as a parent when... I get angry and I have to figure out how to not do that because it's not a healthy way to parent. So 
I'll have to say, I have to go lock myself in the bathroom so that I don't yell. Um, because I had a, you know, extremely violent, um, alcoholic as a, you know, sort of a father figure, Mm -hmm. you know, even though he was like 17 through his early twenties, um, you know, sort of towering through the rooms, you know, and, 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 you know, punching my other brother and, and screaming and yelling and sometimes punching my dad. So that stays with you what's it like in the bathroom you know uh quiet (laughs) in in a good way well you mean for me yeah because at least in the beginning learning how to not unleash anger on loved ones Mm -hmm. feels like sitting on a volcano yeah. It it did for me. Yeah. Um and it was a process yeah. of and I'm just wondering what that was like for you when you would go lock yourself in the bathroom when you wanted to explode. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good question. I think um I tend to try it, it, you know, often it turns to tears, often my rage will turn to tears. So sometimes I'll cry and I'll usually text my husband and say like, you have to come home. It's not happening as much now, um, that they're getting older and it feels like a little bit more manageable to parent in certain ways. In other ways, it's more difficult because they become more like teenagers. And that is a whole other hormonal, uh, process that is complicated in its own way. Um, and I have exploded at them. Give me, give me some low lights. Oh boy. Okay. If you're Um, comfortable. Yeah. So, you know, they twins, my twins would have a lot of conflict and would fight a lot with each other. And, you know, sometimes they would hit each other. And for me, that's also another like. Uh, hitting would be really scary for me because I'm like, oh, is this going to be like what it was like in my house? And I would try the like, okay, I need you guys to not hit. Let's move to our separate corners and do all the sort of parenting techniques I would read about. And I'd find like none of it would work. And I could feel my voice getting louder and um, say like the, it, 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 you know, it escalates to a point where then I would say like, stop hitting your fucking sister right now. And then I'm like, oh my God. You know, and then they're both crying, you know, and then you've got two. Mission accomplished. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No one's hitting each other anymore. Right. Um, and then realizing like, I just screamed at two, you know, six-year-olds, two little tiny kids yeah. and and scared them. And then when you scream at your kids the F word mm-hmm. and they're crying and you realize like, oh, I'm just replicating the experience of my own childhood. I just terrified children. You feel, I feel, I felt um, humiliated and ashamed and uh, awful. I I felt like I you know, my first instinct to never have kids, which was how I felt until about 37, was correct. I shouldn't have, you know, I'm not mentally fit enough to be a parent and I'm bad at it. And I, uh, you're you're talking about how you felt back then. Yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't have done it. And this was a mistake. And, 
you know, I have to fix this and I shouldn't, you know, it's such a feeling of failure that's, you know, beyond any sort of career failures I've ever had, which are many. Um, And, you know, uh, I would always try to remember my, my, I have a friend who's, who's lovely, this woman, Anne, who works in as a social worker. And she would always say like, you have to remember the percentages of like 80% of the time you're doing a great job. Yeah. But 20% of the time you're going to fuck up as a parent. And then you just, that's bound to happen. But the repair work is what matters that you repair afterward, you know, and, um, I would always say, you know, mommy made a mistake. It's not okay for grownups to yell like that. You know, like. That's so huge for kids to see that modeled. Sometimes adults also get angry and lose their temper. And I shouldn't have done that. You know, like, I'm really sorry. Like, but, you know, after you've done that a few times, <laughs> it starts to feel like an empty apology. Um, and I think that just I had to start really working on my own anger mm-hmm. because I didn't know I had it. Like, I don't think I don't think I knew I had that kind of rage until I had kids. <laughs> they really bring it out of you. Do you ever find yourself feeling resentful that they've been dealt a better hand than you were as a kid and that they're not grateful? Sure. Sure. Do you ever say that to them? <laughs> I I have. Yeah. I'll just be like, and then I'm like, oh God, you sound just like that. Like <clears throat> when I was a kid, I had to walk two miles to the yes. cinema and it was nine times, like my own dad saying stuff like that. But like, I think it's more that I have different emotions. Sometimes it feels healing to give them a protected childhood mm-hmm. because it's giving it to myself in a way. Like I get to have those experiences with them. So it's healing for me. But there are other times that I think, oh, wow. Like when I was this age, like I smoked, you know, when I was nine, you know, or like, oh, I'd already had my first beer. Like, oh, yeah, that was when that guy said he wished he could finger me, you know, what? and I was at a my brother's party and he wanted to pop my cherry. Like, and how old was he? Probably 16. And you were how old? 11 and I was just at some drug party and walking around alone and well you know just like not having people protecting me and seeing that my kids get to have this sort of innocence it is a it is a weird re-traumatizing in a way that like it, it it has a dual emotional response of like I'm so grateful I get to give this to you because it is a gift to give it to myself now. But also then it reminds me of those periods of life as they get to these different ages. It's a marker for me of like, oh yeah, this is what was happening to me at that age. Here's the sadness I buried. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Get to have that happen again. Um, So it's both, I think. It's really complicated. And it's also the things that I think Oh, I'm over all of that. You know, I wrote a book about it. Like, I I dealt with it when I wrote the book. What's the, what's the name of the book? It's not out because I'm okay. still trying to publish it, but it's called Maybe Baby. And it's about um, deciding to have a children late in life. And also because of my childhood was one of the reasons mm-hmm. I was like, nope, <laughs> kids okay. aren't for me. Um, so hopefully it'll be published soon. But you think, okay, I've worked through this. I mean, do you have those experiences where you're like, that's I've worked through? 
And then you can just be really surprised. Uh, surprised in what way? That it's coming up again. Yes. Um, if I, I find that this stuff comes up in layers, which makes sense because it gets buried mm-hmm. in layers. And so why wouldn't it come up in in layers? And one of the things I try to surrender to is that healing has its own schedule. Mm. It's circuitous. It's not linear. And it's not graceful. And you can't force it. You can't force it. And one of the things I struggle with probably more than old shit coming up is beating myself up for the way I handle it. You know, sometimes it was really embarrassing the way that I processed stuff, especially before I didn't have boundaries. I would just try to find a mommy figure and Mm -hmm. vomit it all, vomit it all up. This is after Mm -hmm. I cut contact with my mom because Mm -hmm. in many ways it was like there was a death and I felt like an orphan because the image I had created of her to survive as a child one day exploded mm-hmm. and uh and all the sadness all the years of the sadness came rushing up at once and i felt like a desperate uh desperate orphan who just wanted to be soothed and one of the issues that i had struggled with my whole life was being sexualized as a child mm. and so sexualizing things became a way for me to soothe it so i was mm-hmm. trying to connect to the to to women as as mother figures but also feeling the the impulse to want to sexualize the situation almost almost like using my story as um not a come on but a a way to uh kind of secretly get a hit from wanting them to wrap me in their arms mm-hmm. and protect me, but also feel sexual feelings from it. And I'm talking about figuratively. Yeah. So I felt like a monster mm-hmm. for, I felt like a double agent mm-hmm. for having these thoughts and, and, and feelings. And I'm kind of able to forgive myself now because uh, it's a lot for, for somebody to go through but I agonize over looking bad. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to sort of, I think it's totally normal what you're saying, but it's also like we can't really punish ourselves for things that we weren't even really aware we were doing at the time. Yeah. You know, and it's it's also just a very normal response to the situation. And I can tell somebody that mm. and feel that way for them. Yeah. But when it's us, I think we have the added weight of we don't want to wander around in this world with somebody thinking pathetically of us. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of this is stuff that you can't control because it's happened to us when we were children. Right. But it's still for me like embarrassing there's shame this idea that like i spent most of my adult life wanting to fit in a way that people wouldn't know like that i was working class too you know that that like what i came from was a lot of trauma that had to do with you know where i'd come from the kind of life like the idea that it was like you know 
pregnant teenagers mm-hmm. and cars on blocks. And then I paid my way working in a factory, you know, through college. It was like I wanted to fit in with people that had gone to good schools and had good families. And I could I knew which fork to use. I didn't eat Thanksgiving mm-hmm. dinner on a paper plate. Like I wanted to I mean, this is a class issue, but it also had to do with my dysfunctional upbringing. Look, you can be in any class and have a dysfunctional upbringing. Right. So that's not mutually exclusive. But for me, it was the shame of like, I don't want people to know this about me because they'll see it. Like they'll smell it on me. It's going to stink. Right. <laughs> you know? And I think that comes with a lot of the shame of childhood neglect or abuse or dysfunction is that you are trying to sort of pass so people can't see it. You mentioned earlier that there was that you were just scratching the surface of <laughs> of some of this stuff. Is there is there anything that you you would like to add about um the environment you were raised in or things you experienced that you, that you feel like have informed um who you are today, whether um, you've processed hmm. them or not? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I had briefly mentioned, you know, that I have epilepsy and I had started having seizures when I was 15 and had them, you know, tonic-clonic seizures, which are the most sort of visibly intense to people that see them. They're, you know, I don't want to say like they're the most serious, but they're, they can be dangerous and they can kill people and um, wasn't treated for them and had over a dozen and did not get medicated for them until I was out here and in my 30s did a neurologist actually say, you have epilepsy and you need to be on medication. This is really serious. And when I told the neurologist like, oh, I've been having them since I was a kid, nobody really thought it was a big deal. And they were like- That is jaw-dropping. What? (laughs) That is jaw-dropping. And- you know, I think I don't want to blame my family on that entirely. I think. Well, let me do that. <laughs> you know, I did see a doctor who was like, oh, I think she's just fainting. But <sighs> no one, you know, there, you know, fainting looks very different than yeah. convulsing and pissing your pants on the floor, which was what was happening to me. And even now, when I talk to my family about it, they change the subject which I find really bizarre. It's like they think, I don't know if they think I'm like trying to get attention or like making a big deal out of this thing that isn't a thing. Um, it's a really bizarre um, family system that I'm coming from. <laughs> What's it like when you wake up from a seizure, especially some of the more severe ones? This is the weird feeling I don't understand if this is an actual side effect from it, but I feel absolute shame and I immediately start apologizing. (laughs) I usually start saying, I'm so sorry and I'm crying and um, I'll be like, I'm fine. It's fine. It's not a big deal. And I think that is probably an effect of my childhood of just being like, don't make a big deal out of what's happening to me because there are other... (laughs) There are other bigger things you should pay attention to. Um, 
But I think the first one I had when I was 15 was at a friend's sleepover. And I don't even think I told my parents. And maybe it wasn't even my first because I remembered sort of being aware on my friend's floor and her dad was like over me yelling that I knew like something had happened to sort of minimize it and to not make a big deal out of it. What was he yelling? Like, she's, wake up, wake up, wake up. Um, Because it does, and I don't know if this happens to everyone who has tonic-clonic seizures, but your face turns bluish gray often because you're, it can be hard to breathe because your chest muscles are contracting so much that you sometimes aren't breathing. And that's why they'll say like, if the person is seizing for more than like, uh, 30 seconds, call 911 because they can actually die from not breathing, not getting enough oxygen mm-hmm. to their brain and it can really be damaging. So, and I don't think they even knew what was, you know, it wasn't like I knew I had epilepsy at the time to right. ever t- say to anyone, hey, if I have a seizure, right. here's what you should do. I just didn't even know. I was like, I'm a person who faints a lot was what I thought. And so it might not have even been my first. This is just the one I recall first. Um, But it feels embarrassing, too, because I pee my pants, which is an embarrassing thing to do. Yeah. You know, unless you're four and then you don't care because you'll just pee your pants anywhere. Um, So, yeah, I think it's shame usually and just being really tired um, is what it feels like. Has the medication worked? Yeah, it does. It it works really well. And I went almost a decade without having a seizure, which is the longest I've ever gone in my entire life. Um, And then I had one, which was a real surprise, on the medication, um, like about a year ago. And that was just kind of like, oh, this is a surprise. But um, didn't have really any uh, lasting bad effects from it that I – that I know of, unless you tell me, do you feel like, do I seem weird right now? What do you mean? <laughs> oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I was like, what? Other than the shaking. <laughs> the constant shaking and that you just peed all over my chair. Uh, if you could, and I, pardon me if this is kind of a cheesy question, but if you, adult you yeah. could go back to eight-year-old you and interact with her yeah in any way what would that sound like what might you say what might she say or yeah. would it just be a nonverbal? i mean or any age yeah i mean i wish i could go back and tell her not to smoke because <laughs> i got really addicted to cigarettes at a really young age um you know i wish i could tell her that it was all gonna work out okay like, not to worry. She wasn't going to get kidnapped by anyone in a van. She didn't have to hide under her bed all the time, like, and worry about everything, that everything was going to work out. Why did you think you were going to be kidnapped? I think, you know, remember in the 80s when it was like kids were getting kidnapped, like everybody was worried about kidnapping. Right. So I was so afraid of getting kidnapped. I was terrified walking home from school that I would like anytime a car would drive by and even remotely slow down, I would run through the backyard neighborhoods oh, behind the houses thinking that car's going to kidnap me. And I was a latchkey kid, so I was home alone a lot. And I thought somebody was going to break in the house and murder me. Like I think because I think I had an anxiety disorder. I had so yeah. much intense fear about 
things like that happening or like the house burning down or right. and I know was I was left alone a lot. Right. So I think that I just was I, I, I think I wish I could tell the, this little girl, you're going to be safe. <laughs> Medication is coming. Not soon enough. But it's coming and, and you're going to be OK. And do you think she would have said anything? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Thanks. Maybe thanks. <laughs> she was pretty funny. Yeah? I think so. She still had a good sense of humor. <laughs> That's one of the... The nice byproducts, if if that doesn't wind up being our only coping mechanism, it's it's nice to be able to laugh about the fucked up things. That's one of the things I love about support groups is when there's a belly laugh about something really dark, um, not at the expense of the person who experienced it, but because we all know, yeah, the the darkness and the the awfulness of it. I don't know. There's something so cleansing and healing about it. And it, it, it's, it's a connection that is hard to find with people who haven't lived through a shit show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also, I don't know. I, I mean, I, Jerry Seinfeld claims to have had a great childhood and he thinks mm-hmm. like some people can just be funny, but I'm like, mm. I don't know if I've come across anyone deeply funny who's had a, normal childhood yeah may not be capital t trauma but something was missing yeah yeah i do think you know uh you have to have been through some some darkness yeah to get the edge well i i appreciate you sharing all the stuff that you did and especially about the marriage counseling it's it's such a um such an important topic i think especially for people that are parents um People can listen to your podcast. It's called How to Survive. And uh, uh, where where else? Uh, they can find you at uh, christinekimmel.com. Yeah, I have a website that I don't do much with, but I'm mm-hmm. on all the social medias and uh, Christine A. Kimmel on Twitter and Instagram. And, and spell Christine. K-R-I-S-T-I-N-E. K-I-M-M-E-L. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Loved, loved, loved talking to her. Thank you so much, Christine. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
let's dive into some surveys. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Kate. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s. She says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, has never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes think or fantasize about having sex with two guys at once, and in parentheses, husband not present. And also sometimes when I see a good-looking guy, I wonder what his cock looks like. Big, small, shaved, that sort of thing. Uh, deepest, darkest secrets. I often go without panties under my clothes. It's just something I like to do. I have a butt plug, and I sometimes wear it when we or I go out. Uh, I've even worn it to work a few times. Very naughty, but fun. My husband and I like to take sexually explicit photos of each other and sometimes film ourselves while we're having sex or masturbating. Uh, and then th- this question is a little bit redundant, but uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. As I said before in a previous question, sometimes fantasize about having sex with two guys at once, husband not present. This idea really turns me on and is great for masturbation. I'm sure my husband wouldn't understand that I'd like to be a, uh, an MMF threesome and him not being there to see it and enjoy it, but it's just uh, a fantasy and I don't think it would ever happen. Uh, sharing this fantasy makes me feel no different than before. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd love to tell my mother that I participate in anal sex and that I regularly masturbate with sex toys and that I have also made sex videos. I can just imagine the look on her face after I've told her. My mother is just so anal, ironically, when it comes to anything to do with sex. But, of course, I never would as it would just be too embarrassing for both of us, and there are some things your parents should never know. Uh, what do you, if anything, do you wish for? A baby. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I think everyone knows that we'd love to have a baby, but it's not happening right now, but it will. How do you feel after writing these things down? Again, no different uh, now than before. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? As far as my sex life goes, I've never shared my thoughts or experiences with anyone apart from my husband. Even with him, there are a couple of things that I keep to myself. I've never met anyone who I felt I could trust to share my sexy secrets with yet. Thank you for sharing that. And that is one of the healthier uh, shame and secret surveys that, that we have have had. I can't remember the last time that I read a survey where somebody had not been sexually abused and not experienced uh, physical or emotional abuse. I mean, yeah, definitely sounds like there were some issues around sex growing up, but uh, in your household in terms of your parents' attitude. But um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is also from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself William. And he identifies as straight. He is in his 20s. He uh, says that he was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts, he says. In discussing my depression and what triggers my thoughts of suicide, my therapist recognized that several of my triggers are common signs of having been sexually abused. 
She seems to think I don't remember the incident, which is entirely plausible considering I started having panic attacks around age eight and was promptly given clonopin twice a day until I was 17. So there's a lot I don't remember. What I do remember are situations in which I was nearly molested, but somehow had the instincts to get myself out of the situation. Maybe I was just a smart kid. And you know, I I, I think that uh, that we should certainly give weight to situations where uh, we felt that it it could happen that we were in danger you know ptsd doesn't always involve uh, you know something catastrophic happening but our central nervous system getting in that state where we're anticipating it happening and it feels like it's it's about to um but that's neither here nor there continuing um maybe i was just a smart kid or maybe something had happened before Uh, That would cause an eight or nine year old boy to think, oh shit, I'm about to get molested. Not to mention both of my parents had fathers that were alcoholic sexual predators, uh, one of whom even served jail time for child porn and raping a teenage girl. But even those instances in which I avoided sexual abuse were repressed. And I didn't remember until I was in my early 20s. I'm in my late 20s now. I'm not handling this shit well. Little pieces are starting to come back, and it's ruining my life. Uh, He's been physically and emotionally abused. My mother was an anxious, paranoid, religious nut with boatloads of trauma left unprocessed. She found Jesus as an adult and really took a nosedive into being a cold, judgmental cunt. I can't remember a single instance of her telling me she loved me, and she only hugged me after my dog died. She shamed everyone around her for any little thing, like projecting her own personal shame from being sexually abused. She hit me when I talked back, made me feel like a burden because of my blossoming mental health issues, which were a common subject of argument between her and my father. My dad was a very depressed and angry alcoholic. My mother showed him no affection after she got into church. She was better than him after that. He hated his dad. He hated his wife, and most of the time, it felt like he hated me. He threw himself into his work, working 70-plus hours a week, so he wouldn't have to see or deal with anything at home. He spent the rest of his time getting wasted, driving drunk with me in the passenger seat on a regular basis. A bottle of whiskey, a bottle of mouthwash, and a Glock 9mm under his driver's seat. He was a man perpetually on the edge of self-destruction, and now... I'm the same. He was left brain dead after an accident two years ago, and me being an only child and him having isolated himself in a tailspin with his addiction, it was on me to pull the plug. Wow, this is so heavy. He knew he was a bad father. He yelled. He hit. But funny enough, these weren't things that occurred when he was drunk. He was generally a happy guy when he was drinking. It was when he was sober that he was depressed, angry, and unhinged. One time, when I was a kid, there was an argument of some sort. I ran up the stairs, and he ran after me. I turned around and kicked him in the groin. He punched me in the nose. I couldn't have been older than 10. He would call me as an adult, blacked out drunk, not making much sense, complaining about his father, lamenting the death of his mother. In parentheses, that's when the drinking really went off the rails. 
talking about what a shitty father he had been and how much he hated himself. He died a miserable drunk, alone, and I fear I'll end up the same. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? Not really. My dad is dead and my mom doesn't talk to me much. She's mellowed out a lot with age and treats me better as an adult than she ever did as a child. I think she just realized when I moved out at 17 that I was completely willing to cut her off entirely. She changed her tune, but we still aren't close. Darkest thoughts. I have suicidal and homicidal ideation on pretty much a daily basis. I hate myself and want to die. I hate the world and want it to die. It's exhausting to pretend to be well-adjusted just to maintain any form of friendship or romantic interest. Darkest secrets. My girlfriend shows me no attention. She's emotionally unavailable and cold. She shows me little physical affection, and we've completely stopped having sex. I wanted to feel wanted. Today, I met up with a random guy from the internet to give me a blowjob in a dark room. I thought it would work, that I would feel desired, desired enough to get my dick hard. I was wrong. It was the most awkward, embarrassing, anxiety-ridden situation I've ever put myself in, and I feel like a fucking idiot and a scumbag. I feel unlovable. I want to kill myself and everyone who ever neglected me or treated me poorly to live with that guilt. I want other people to feel as hopeless and sad as I feel. I want to hurt someone. I want to hurt myself. Therapy isn't working. Meds aren't working. Drinking isn't working. Drugs aren't working. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to feel wanted and desired. I want my partner to initiate, then let me, let me take complete control. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I can't tell anyone what I want because I don't feel I deserve anything I want. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want the pain to stop. I want to sleep soundly without nightmares. I want to quit drinking. I want to feel loved. Have you shared these things with others? I share with my therapist, but I withhold certain things, or maybe I'm just not capable of saying them. How do you feel after writing things, these things down? Worthless. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? No. Oh, buddy, I feel for you, man. And I, I just want to highlight something that, that you wrote. I mean, there's a lot of things I want to highlight that you wrote, but the thing that I think stands out the most to me, because I can relate to a lot of your story before I, before I got sober. And, and somebody said this to me the, the, the other day we were talking about all the people that, you know, roll into recovery programs and meetings and get help. And, you know, probably 90% of them want to quit drinking or doing drugs. But very few of them commit themselves to not drinking or doing drugs because it's fucking hard. And most of our instincts are 180 degrees away from the tools we need to employ to really remove that obsession to drink or or get high and so we stay stuck in this spiral where everything takes on 
a feeling of never ending doom and what's the point and I can't get out of bed and I feel alone and hopeless and worthless. And one of the reasons I started the podcast because after I began to um, get sober and feel differently about life and myself and the world and everything else and you know not that I'm totally out of the woods and I don't struggle but it's manageable nowadays because I committed myself to this and um, I, I struggle with committing myself to to things but that is something I had a moment of clarity where it was like I am gonna die or kill myself if I keep doing this and that gave me the impetus to commit to continue to get help and be vulnerable when I really want to pull away from people and I and I encourage you because I don't know anybody that can get their mental and emotional shit together while they are engaging in alcoholism or or drug addiction it's just it's just in my opinion an insurmountable hurdle to expecting to grow and process things while while we're still doing that so i encourage you to ask yourself what's it going to take for me to commit to doing this and to be willing you know one of the definitions of asking for help is being open to the form in which it arrives. Um, untreated alcoholics, we go to the control card, you know, because that feels like the only safe choice. And yet, the answer in many ways is giving up control, surrendering. I hope that makes sense. This is from the love survey filled out by a dude doing things. And he writes, I think most of us know the danger associated with touching a cat's belly. Sometimes my cats are na napping on their side. I can't help but reach in and scratch that thing. And I just love it when they go belly up asking for more without even opening their eyes. There's a poetry in how vigilant they are in guarding the area while awake and aware just to completely expose their softest spot while they are at their most vulnerable. You know, it's kind of fitting that, that this is right after the survey that I just read. It's, uh, you know, the first, the first step, I think, in changing our lives is having moments of vulnerability. You know, people can't help us if they don't know what's going on with us and, and, previous survey, I really encourage you to fully open up to your to your therapist so that they can help you so they have all the information. But it's so hard when we're stuck in having our walls up, feeling like we're going to, you know, be destroyed by sharing that soft part of ourselves for fear of judgment or just in general not being able to control it. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by um, a non-binary person. Uh, I don't know if that's the, the right word. Uh, they call themselves uh, that's, that's too much about myself to properly fill this in um, about the question, what gender are you? 
don't really know. I have the body of a man, so I think that makes me one. If I could have a female body tomorrow, I would, but there's nothing about my internal or mental state that identifies as female. It's just a mind and a man's body. I'm so glad that you shared that because I think there are a lot of people out there that struggle to define uh, gender, um, you know, even gender that's, that's uh, you know, especially gender that um, is fluid or, you know, that people don't know what the word is. You didn't specify pronouns for them, so I'm going to refer to you as, as they. Uh, our, uh, their sexuality, uh, they say, I don't really understand my sexuality. The connection between my body and my mind feels wrong. Now, they're in their 20s. They were raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. They've never been sexually abused. They've never been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about being diagnosed with a terminal illness because I think that those last few years of being able to do nothing guilt-free would be more peaceful than anything I'll experience in the next 50 years working. When the world stopped because of COVID and I was furloughed for two months, paid 75% of my wage but not working, it was the happiest I've ever been in my adult life. My mental state was so peaceful and I would almost call it euphoric. The shame of knowing that's how I feel about what everyone else accepts as earning a living makes me so ashamed of who I am that I have shut everyone out in my life in my 20s. I'm 32 now and I regard myself as possibly the most pathetic person on the planet. It is not pathetic. And I experienced uh, that guilt because when the pandemic hit, I, I also felt euphoria. I felt like my outer world finally reflected my inner world. And I felt like a terrible person. So you are not the only one that uh, felt or thought that. Darkest thoughts or secrets. Um, I had extremely powerful orgasms in my dreams from as young as I can remember, before I even knew or understood what sex even was. The dreams would usually just be hugging people. One time I had one about my sister and another about my mom. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Imagining that I am a woman engaging in any kind of sexual act with a man. Sharing that makes me feel dirty, perverted, and that this survey now won't be read out on the pod. There is some controversy about a since-debunked unscientific theory which made claims regarding this sort of thing and the issue of transgenderism. Although it has since been debunked, some online places of support I have found feel touchy about even bringing up my type of sexual experience for fear of offending or mischaracterizing a group of people in a damaging and possibly incorrect way. It makes me feel like I am too weird, even for the places where weirdos are welcomed. Like my experience is a can of worms. Even extremely understanding and compassionate people like Paul won't want to open. I guess I'd want to make clear that I don't even understand what my own feelings or experiences mean, so they certainly shouldn't be used to make any kind of judgment about anyone or anything else. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mom I love her and I'm sorry for how sad she is 
that I'm not happy. I don't know why I can't say it. The words catch in my throat like nails on a chalkboard. What, if anything, do you wish for? To win the lottery and have enough money to spend every day in the pursuit of happiness. Sleeping when I'm tired and pursuing fulfilling hobbies. At least then, the day-to-day experience might be tolerable even if I can't resolve my other issues. Have you shared these things with others? I've spoken with two therapists. The truth is I always, I've always known what I am looking for is unrealistic for someone else to tell me who I am. After over 10 years of soul searching, I am no closer answering that. How do you feel after writing these things down? Bad. That a snapshot of all these things about me make me look pathetic, lazy, and some sort of sexual deviant. That is so not the case. But also hopeful that it will be read out on the pod. Uh, And now, bad again, thinking about why that is. Why am I even writing this? Do I really want help or just some weird sort of self-indulgent dopamine hit? I help. I hate myself. That is so human, what you are thinking and feeling. And I think so many of us, myself included, relate just, just wanting to be seen and validated for who we are, the authentic us, even if we don't understand who the authentic us is. And... That was a heartbreaking but beautiful survey, and I'm, and I'm glad you filled it out. And I hope you're listening. This is from the love survey filled out by Dear Joanne. Um, and uh, she writes, I love writing on a whiteboard. There's something liberating about the impermanence of what goes up on the board. A feeling of freedom and power. Fill me, knowing that my ideas and thoughts are good enough to be on the board, but if I decide I don't like them, or I thought of something better, I can wipe them away as they never existed in the first place. It is so awesome. I love that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Stargazer. She writes... I was in a physically and emotionally abusive relationship for almost 15 years. Luckily, I left him 10 years ago. I definitely have my issues from it and haven't been in a serious relationship since. But my trust issues are a whole different story. Absolutely no one knew of the abuse. I hid it well. He chipped at my already low self-esteem during most of our relationship, so I felt I deserved what I got. In the beginning, I felt so sad for him and his past traumas. Sometimes, after a really bad abusive episode, he'd apologize and tell me how he loved me. I'd sit in his lap and he'd hold me while I cried. I was crying because he attacked me, because I felt worthless, emotionally exhausted, and not wanting to be alive. I'd let him hold me because I needed some sort of physical comfort, and then he was the one who just assaulted me. I don't cry in front of people, and I don't like people touching me. So why did I just cry my heart out and be held by this toxic, abusive person? It was a very confusing, sad time in my life. Sometimes he'd lock me out of the house for 30 or 45 minutes in the middle of the night. I'd be in my pajamas and slippers. It really sucked during the nights where it'd be 30 or 40 degrees. Anyways, 
I'd stare up at the stars and imagine finally getting up enough courage to leave him and what it'd feel like to be away from him. What would I be doing? Sometimes I wished he'd just die. He'd threatened suicide multiple times and even had a noose hanging up in the garage once. The last few years with him, I got to the point I'd tell him to go ahead and do it, and then I'd walk off because I know he wouldn't do it, or if he did, I didn't want to see it. For years after I left him, I regretted staying with him for so long and would cry to myself and tear myself up sometimes. I still have my days occasionally, but I got to the point I realized I needed to think of that part of my life as a learning experience. It's made me stronger. Otherwise, it'd bring me down and he'd be having the power and control again. To all the people listening who are in an abusive relationship, it doesn't get better and you can't help the abuser and you can't believe all the awful stuff that was put in your head. You're worthy of being safe and loved. If you have children, your children are worth being safe. I can say it and make it sound simple, but I know it can sound unimaginable to you right now. Victims need to leave when they're ready. I planned ahead and had everything ready and left when he was working. There are resources and people out there who are willing to help. Thank you so much for that. That was really profoundly beautiful and um, sad and beautiful. And then finally, this is an awful moment. And uh, we read this one years ago on the podcast, but it's, it's that's one of my favorites. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Psycho Mom. And she writes, I was thinking this morning of the time when I was living in Idaho in a little house we rented. I was married to my ex at the time. It was the dead of winter and we were dirt poor. Too poor to maintain our car to get me to work each day. One day, my husband decided to run off to California with a friend and leave me and the two kids behind to fend for ourselves. My car had no heater, and I had to take the kids to the sitter about 25 miles away. In order to defrost the windshield, I took a couple of bricks and heated them on top of the wood stove while I got ready for work. Then I took them out to the car and placed them on hot pads on the inside of the car near the windows. After a while, the ice would melt off and I could get to work before they iced up again. Of course, the kids and I had to be bundled up from head to toe. One morning, I awoke to find two feet of new fallen snow on the ground, which I would have to deal with in order to get out. After my usual ritual of defrosting my windows, I shoveled all the snow that I could from around my car and tried to drive away. The snow was thick and heavy. I was stuck, and the more I panicked, the worse it became. I was so furious at this point, thinking about my husband basking in the California sun, that I decided to do the most logical thing to rectify the problem. I went to his closet got all the clothes, shoes, and underwear that he left behind and used them under my tires for traction. I'll never forget the satisfaction I felt as I looked in the rear view mirror at his underwear flying as I drove away. His undies were hanging in the trees till the next spring. Oh my God, do I love that. 
if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never forget that you are not alone. And maybe today, consider taking a baby step in the direction of, of asking for help. And even if you're in the process of getting help, maybe making a phone call, checking in on someone, asking how they're doing. I don't know about you, but that helps me. It helps get me out of my bullshit. And uh, just never forget, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.